Welcome to Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, Army Ranger, real estate investor, and income enthusiast. On this show, we uncover the keys to attaining financial freedom. There are so many people listening right now who are stuck in that day-to-day, nine-to-five rat race. Luckily, it's only temporary. Each week, we bring on guests that help us discover the steps to build financial freedom, passive income, and generational wealth, so we can live the life we were born to live. Money is freedom. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Wealth Science. I'm your host, Jesse Fuchsia, and today's guest is Jerry Feta. Jerry is the CEO and founder of Wealth Dynamics, a financial firm that helps thousands of clients across the U.S. build wealth and attain financial freedom. Jerry is married to his wife and business partner, Lexi, and together they have achieved financial independence in their own lives before the age of 30 and want to help as many families as possible do the the same. Jerry has been featured by Forbes Finance Council, Yahoo, Fox, Chicago Weekly News, and New York Finance. Wealth Science, I bring you one of the youngest and most successful financial minds we have ever had the privilege to speak with. Jerry Feta, welcome to the show, brother. What's going on? Hey, thanks, Jesse. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Your story, it's, it's incredible. I mean, obviously, you got started at a young age, and it's, it's crisscrossed the map here for the last decade. So I think today's episode is going to bring incredible value. For the people who don't know you, Jerry, if you could take a couple minutes and just introduce yourself and kind of bring up your background and what's gotten you to today. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, as Jesse said, I'm Jerry, um, and I own a company called Wealth Dynamics. And um, basically, I've been in in the financial industry since the age of 18. I became a uh, mainstream financial advisor almost right out of high school. Um, and so I was helping families with you know uh, retirement planning and life insurance and kind of all the normal things. Like when you meet with the financial guy, it's kind of the normal retail stuff that you hear about. Um, and I did that for a number of years. I, I, I started with a pretty large agency. And um, I built that up, um, ended up going independent, partnering with Dave Ramsey for a little while. Um, and then I built that into six or seven states, um, stopped doing the Dave Ramsey stuff. As I started learning more about finances, I was like, this is not the, you know, this is a good baby step, like beginner stuff. It's not the direction of, of the 1% and how wealth is actually built. Uh, I partnered with Grant Cardone for a little while as well. Um, and, and that was really where I started learning more and more about real estate, sales, marketing, all of these other aspects. Um, and today, my firm, Wealth Dynamics, we we literally we help families go from you know just starting out, sometimes even you know financially uneducated, which is where I started. It was not something I was ever taught about, to having a real pathway, a real blueprint to follow to achieve financial independence. Yeah, starting with your story, like in the beginning, I mean, I'm I'm just super inspired how you started this straight out of high school, which is a which is a feat in itself, Jerry. If you think about that, like in those beginning years, or even back, you know, in high school or middle school, I guess where was that initial idea of like financial freedom or going into like the wealth advisement, you know, space? Was there initial like inspiration, or what kind of pushed you in that direction? You know, it honestly it wasn't on my radar at all. It was something that um, you know I, I actually. I remember when I was 17 years old, I actually made the conscious decision that I was not going to spend my life working for money. Um, and, and I didn't do that out of like financial literacy. I wasn't like, I'm going to build wealth and passive income. But someone in high school told me the dollar is not backed by anything. And I don't know why, but at 17 years old, that meant something to me. It was like, wait, so you're telling me I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to school and get good grades and go to college and get a career to work for these pieces of paper that really have no value. 
And I was like, that's, that's BS. I'm not doing that. So, um, I didn't have any, any desire to be, you know, financially savvy. I was basically going to just like live life by the whim, you know, free and easy and, and do it the way I wanted to do it. Not only that, my family, um, our, our financial history growing up was very bad. My parents got divorced from each other several times over finances. Um, when I was eight, eight years old, I think all in the same summer, my mom and dad got divorced. Uh, we lost the house, we lost the car and we were homeless. Um, and it was all over finances. So for me growing up, there was not like a, a good relationship with money. And, and so it was kind of ironic almost that I ended up getting into the industry. That was something that, that just kind of came out of the blue. And, and it was something that I wasn't interested in at all until I started seeing how much I could help people. Yeah, that's awesome. And so many, we've had so many people on here who have talked about the concepts of, you know, fiat money or the, or the government just printing money. And I also find it really interesting how you grew up and really, it almost sounds like, you know, similar to my family where money was kind of stigmatized, you know, we didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about how to make money, how to build money or anything like that. I mean, what's your advice for parents out there, Jerry, who are maybe trying to start their kids off with early financial, you know, progress or, or something like that? Uh, you know, maybe the better question here is how can we destigmatize talking about money at the dinner table or stuff like that? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. And it's actually kind of funny because it sounds like you and I both grew up in a similar similar um, family culture where it's just not talked about. In my opinion, when you're born, there are certain things in life that you are involuntarily going to participate in, right? Breathing would be one of those things. You know, gravity would be one of those things. Having to go to the bathroom, having to eat food. Finances, it's one of those things, right? Um, and if somebody doesn't know that, it's the equivalent of, of, you know, throwing a kid out in the ocean and saying, you know, go swim right? It's your environment. It's all around you. And if you don't know how to handle it. So I think, I think a lot of parents don't want to um, share how bad things really are. I think a lot of times parents might not be financially educated themselves. So it might be an area where they're a little bit ashamed to talk about it. Um, it might be a little bit, you know, taboo to share with the kids like, Hey, we have, we have $20,000 in credit card debt and we can, we can barely afford our mortgage. And we, we we're one paycheck away from losing our cars. Right. So I think, you know, there's some humor in that, but I think that uh, from a parent standpoint, it's easier to, to learn with your kids, right? Kids observe things. Everything I learned about money from my parents, it's because I watched it happen, not because it's stuff they told me. Most of what they told me, I didn't listen to anyways, because I was able to see that it didn't match the actions and the reality of what was going on, right? And so I think as a parent, if I'm, you know, financially uneducated, I could let my kids know like, hey, this is new to me too. As a family, let's, let's learn about this. This matters. It's important. Um, and you can even kind of make it game-like. Jerry, I, I love that concept. And like, I think I take it for granted because, you know, I'm similar age to you. I'm in my late twenties. And, and again, I've, you know, I'm in the podcast every day. I'm in the books. I've read your incredible book, but like, I think it's, I've got to understand that not everybody sees the outlook like that. And like you said, there are many parents out there who, who are uneducated and maybe that adds to the stigmatism of, of having those early conversations with their children, which I think would just be so powerful. And I know I wish I, I wish my parents had those conversations with me. So, I mean, that's great advice. I'm, I'm curious to your thoughts, you know, when it comes to the evolution of, of your financial career, you know, again, being 18 years out of high school and being in kind of the Dave Ramsey space to where you are today with your wife, Lexi, you know, how has that understanding of finance kind of evolved over the last decade to where you are today? Yeah. So if I were to, um, I guess if I were to look at it from a timeline, um, when I first got involved in finances at the time, I was actually a bodybuilder and a personal trainer. So I was able to see a parallel between 
people are in bad physical condition because they eat too much and don't work out. And people are in bad financial condition because they earn too little and spend too much. And I was like, okay, that that's like almost an exact, you know, replica just on a different area. Right. And so that was where I started. And I think as I, as I started to learn myself and apply the concepts myself, you know, it went from a very basic, like I need to be earning more income. I need to be budgeting. I need to be trying to save money. I need to be trying to get rid of consumer debt. You know, and those are very basic things, but a lot of families aren't doing that, right? We look at the stats, 80% of America is paycheck to paycheck. 60% of America has less than a thousand dollars saved. Um, and so it just shows that, that the, the basis is not being taken care of as I evolved it then got into, okay, I'm doing that. Now let me learn about, you know, investments. And, and I use the word investments loosely because at the time they were more like retail financial products. And I think that's where a lot of people, you know, they have good intentions, but they get sucked into that world of, okay, I want to be financially responsible. What do I do? And they go, they go to the people who own the skyline. They go to the banks and the insurance companies and they go to Wall Street and they get sold all this stuff. And, and the marketing behind it's phenomenal. And that's what I was doing and selling. And then for me, it evolved because I, I had a friend growing up. He's, he's my best friend in middle school and high school. And I never saw his dad work, right? And I knew when my parents didn't work, it wasn't good, right? Like, like the food was scarce. You know, they were more, more irritable. But this guy, his, his dad never worked. And it's like they always had money. They always had new cars. They, they were building a new house. So it wasn't the same as when my family did it. And so that stuck with me. And I think, you know, as I started to, uh, to learn more about finances, I went back to that friend's dad and actually showed him what I was doing. And, and he was like, all right, cool. Well, he's like, basically that's, that's, that's what everyone does. You know, this is like for, for 90% of the population, but when you're ready to learn about how money really works and you're really ready to learn what the other, you know, 10% and 1% are doing, I want you to come talk to me. And, and that stuck with me. I didn't talk to him for a number of years, but as I started to, um, see some things in, in the, in the financial space that didn't like illogical things. Like, you know, um, we're all talking about mutual funds and 401ks, but I would talk to people that they're wealthy and they don't do that stuff. And I was like, well, what do they do instead? Right. So these little things started getting me thinking and it started, I started reaching for other information. Yeah. That's super interesting. And I mean, you really, I know, and I've listened to you on several podcasts just to prepare for today and, and read your book, which is incredible. I highly recommend everybody go out there and read it, but I know you're not a huge Kiyosaki fan, but I mean, it, it still does kind of allude to the effect of like rich dad, poor dad, where the rich dad, you know, he, he, he wasn't working the nine to five, like probably your father was where this other gentleman was, you know, incurring passive income and making his money work for him, which I just think yeah. is super powerful. Um, back in that, again, in that, kind of college, high school timeframe. I'm just curious, just how I'm kind of putting myself in your shoes where I'm at at 26 years old. Was there any issues with, I'm, I'm trying to picture 18 year old Jerry, like advising 40 or 50 year old John Smith or Jane. I mean, were people ever like, Jerry, you're 18 years old. What are you doing right now? Like trying to give me advice. Cause I kind of get that feeling too, sometimes where it's like, I'm raising capital for a deal or something like that. And it's like, Jesse, you know, you're only 26 years old. So what advice do you have for kind of overcoming that age hurdle? Yeah. I was fortunate that at the time I had a manager um, and he could tell I hadn't voiced it, but that was a concern of mine. Now it never actually happened. Maybe it happened once, but I, I didn't have it very frequently happen where someone literally told me, he, Hey, we will not work with you because you're too young. I think maybe once in my entire career, that was the case. But in my mind, it was a consideration. It was something I was bringing to the table as an objection or as, you know, my own personal doubt, my manager back, back when I was 19, he pulled me aside and I think he could tell because he started very young too. 
So I think he could tell with my body language and, and my energy, just that that was on my mind. And he's like, Hey, Jerry, I want you to, I want you to tell me something. I was like, what? He's like, he's like Tiger Woods, LeBron James, 18 years old. They sign multi hundred million dollar shoe contracts with Nike. And I was like, okay, yeah. He's like, well, what do you think Nike cared how old they were? And I was like, well, no. And, and he's like, okay, well, why is that? And, and I had to think about that for a second. And I, and I, I knew the answer, but I didn't want to say it. And he said it for me. He's like, it's because they were that effing good. Like they were so good. Nike didn't care. They just wrote the check and they knew that they were making a good investment. He's like, if you want to be taken serious in this business, you have to be that good. You have to be so good that nobody considers your age. They just want to work with you. I, I love that. And I think at the end of the day, it just comes back to that. In my mind, it's just a limiting belief. It's just a, something that has to be squashed in between my ears that, you know, who cares? And, I, and I've got buddies who are 20 years old who are taking down 200 unit deals um, in primary markets. So I, at the end of the day, I agree with you. I think it's just, you know, a limiting belief that, that people just have to squash that it's impossible to be in your 20s and be a multimillionaire. Um, or yeah. something like that. So I, I love that analogy. That's awesome. Kind of transitioning into kind of the meat of the interview, Jerry, for the families that are listening, the people maybe on in the car right now on a ride or, or whatever, you know, if you could give them the Jerry Feta just blueprint sequence, what can they start doing right now from, you know, steps one to five to attain financial uh, freedom or, or start the, uh, you know, the wealth building kind of journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, if we give the, the short bullet point, version, <laughs> um, I think the first thing to decide is, is to make the decision I, I, I talk about, and these are, this was a, a, almost like a fork in the road that I had to make. Everybody has the choice of poverty, denial, or wealth. We all have that choice. And so when I was 17 years old, you know, I, I made the decision of, I'm not going to trade time for money. I saw the game. I was like, I'm, I'm not doing that. That doesn't look enticing. It doesn't look fun. I went the poverty route, right? I didn't think about, you know, I'm going to build wealth. I was like, well, I'm just not going to participate. Um, and so the result of that for me was I was homeless, you know, the first six months of being married, um, you know, it was, it was a rough time. And so I realized, you know, like I said, at the beginning of this interview, the, the finance thing is involuntary. It's going to drag you around kicking and screaming, whether you want that to happen or not. And so, you know, everyone has to make the decision of, okay, well, am I going to be in poverty in response to, you know, the economic world around us, or am I going to live in denial, right? I'm going to drive two German vehicles and we're going to go out to eat on the weekends and we're going to work 60 hours a week and, and try and save some money and hopefully go on a vacation once a year. Or am I going to build wealth? Am I going to sacrifice the next five to 10 years of my life to be free for the rest of my life and for future generations onward? It starts there. Okay. And once it starts there, then it, then it turns into financial literacy and financial education, okay? And, and the biggest bullet point that I would say on financial literacy, really understand the difference between money and currency. If someone doesn't understand the difference between money and currency, it's going to be so hard for them to be financially free because the difference between money and currency is the reason why a person would become financially free. It's the, it's the purpose. And so that purpose has to be there. It has to be understood. So I think it begins there. And the education thing, that's daily. There's never, you know, I've been doing this for, for a decade and, and there's never a time where I'm going to be like, okay, I know it all, right? Every day, just like going to the gym every day, I've got to put in time. I've got to read. I've got to watch videos. I've got to listen to podcasts. I've got to increase my financial education. Every day, I've got to be increasing my income somehow. Every day, I've got to be paying attention to my expenses, you know, reconciling them, rating them. Um, and that's really the baseline. Now, once you've done that, and that's more behavior, right? We have to undo some of the old behavior, lack of knowledge. 
once that baseline is in, then it's about getting solvents. And I think this is so important. A lot of people try and skip the solvency step and they're like, well, I'm going to go do, you know, apartments, or I'm going to go do investing, or I'm going to do this. And it's like, okay, well, you got, you got a hundred thousand dollars in car loans. You got, you know, 200 grand in student loan debts. You got 15 grand on credit cards. You're barely earning more than you spend and you've got nothing in savings. Like don't build this entire thing on, on a weak foundation, make sure you're solvent. And so that's the next step is getting solvent, you know, getting to the point where you are earning more than you spend. You do have six months of reserves. You do have credit worthiness. You do have your, your liabilities protected. And, and from there, then jumping into it. And this is kind of like, like when people get solvent, Jesse, this is kind of where they get stuck, right? They get then into the mortgage and the 401k and the bank accounts and all of these retail financial products that prey on solvent people. They don't prey on insolvent people. That's what payday loans are for. Right. But it's the person that does have a hundred grand and they are making six figures or more a year. That's where they get stuck on all of these, you know, central banks, Wall Street, IRS, taxes, all this stuff holds them back because it reduces their ability to keep their income and then put that towards income generating investments. And that's really, um, I call it the 40% rule. If you're solvent and you get through this, this gambit of avoiding all the financial nonsense and traps out there, your goal is to save 40% of your gross income. And, and the purpose of saving it is to then take that capital and invest it into things that produce truly passive income, right? And, and as you do that, you just continue to do it more and more and more, it snowballs and it gets easier and you can do deals faster and faster and faster and faster. And eventually you do that and it's going to, to you know, build up to where your passive income does exceed your savings, expenses, and taxes. At that point, you're financially independent. You can do whatever you want to do with your life because you do not have to trade time for money anymore. I love that. And I, I just love the analogy of, of the gym, Jerry, and how this is literally financial literacy is a muscle and you have to be putting time in every day, whether it's, whether it's yourself or it's someone listening right now who has no idea what they're doing. And you've been doing this for a decade. I mean, every day you've got to be pushing outside your comfort zone and, and training that financial muscle to get stronger, to get better, to get outside your comfort zone. So I love that. When looking at that 40%, Jerry, I mean, what are your thoughts on alternative investments? I mean, real estate, um, you know, maybe, I don't know if you have any thoughts on crypto and, and where we're at right now at the end of 2021 with crypto, but I mean, like someone's got that 40%, they're on that journey, they're, they're doing exactly what you're saying, Jerry, what's the next step from there, I guess, specifically along the lines of alternative investments? Yeah, so with alternative investments, for me, the biggest thing is you've got to look at what's the purpose of investing. Um, if I'm not financially independent yet, meaning I do not have passive income that exceeds my savings expenses and taxes, then the purpose of investing is to get there. Right. And so that means that number one, every investment I do has to produce passive income. Now there's two, two key words there. It has to produce income, which means if it's not an income producing asset, I don't want to be involved in it. Right. And then the other thing is it's got to be passive and passive is not an absolute statement. There's varying degrees of more passive and less passive. Um, and so, you know, when I look at more passive, it means less and less of my time is involved. Um, if I look at, you know, if it's something that's, that's more active, I need to be hands-on. I need to be doing it. I've got to be, you know, fully active with it. So I'm looking at, okay, with alternative investments, my personal favorite for someone that's at that stage is secured private lending. Um, I think there's a reason why the bank wants you to use their money. They don't want to be your partner. They're like, they're, go ahead, use, use our, our hundreds and thousands of millions of dollars. We're fine if you own the deal, just pay us every month, Right. I think lending is one of the most passive forms of income you can have. Um, but again, like you have to look at the word investing, the root of that actually means to clothe your capital, right? And so another analogy, when I wear clothing, I wear clothing that I like, 
I wear clothing that I understand. I wear clothing that fits me. I wear clothing is the clothing that fits my goals and purposes, the things I'm going to use it for. And then I make sure that, that personally, you know, I don't overpay for the clothing. I'm not the guy that's going to walk around in a $500 Gucci belt. That doesn't make sense to me. And then lastly, I'm going to wear vital clothing first. I'm probably going to wear my underwear before I wear my Jordans. Right. And so that's, that's, that's the same thing I do with investing. I got to like it. I got to understand it. It's got to fit me as an investor. It needs to fit my goals. I'm not going to overpay for it. And it, I want to first invest in things that are vital housing, water, you know, those are, those are things people need and they always will need versus something that's more speculative that could come or go. And maybe no one will miss it if it leaves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love the idea of secure private lending. We've had a couple of private lenders on here who have been very successful over the years. And I, I truly, when I, I agree with you, when I think of something that's completely passive, that's definitely something that comes to mind. And then investing in just the basic human needs of life, like you said, shelter for, for me, it would be real estate for other people. It might be something different, but in my opinion, people will always need four walls and a roof. I mean, shelter is one of our most basic human needs. So I, I love that. I think you interpreted it you know, perfectly and in, in what kind of goes into that 40%. Um, I, I wanted to transition just quickly and, and a topic people don't always like talking about and, and they're kind of maybe sometimes bored by it, but I find it super intriguing and it's the topic of taxes and, and what goes into it. And I think it's so fascinating that you know, we have these, you know, multi mega billionaires in the world, Jerry, that pay, you know, pennies and taxes or, or dollars. I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts, Jerry, on the whole tax situation? You know, what can people be doing out there to limit what they pay in taxes? And, and what's the kind of best financial plan going forward with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. So taxes are, are something that, um, for me, I actually started my own tax and accounting firm because I couldn't find anyone that would solve this problem the way that I needed it to be solved. Um, if you look at the tax code, it's over over 5,000 pages long of actual code, right? And, and the kicker is only about like 0.50%. So basically 50 basis points or half of 1% actually represents or actually dictates the paying of income tax, right? Like here's your rates, here's your tables, here's what you got to pay, right? Which means that the other, you know, let's call it 5,000 total pages, I mean, 4,950 pages are not paying taxes, Right. So that's the first thing you got to look at is that's a that's insane. Like that's a gigantic statistic. And then B, the other thing is you have to look at where did the tax code come from? Right. And the tax code primarily comes from from two places. The first one is what everyone knows about, but they don't think about it usually like this. You know, tax code, obviously, it comes from Congress and, and, and our politicians and, and they sponsor bills. And but why? And the reason why is a lot of times they're trying to incentivize behavior. Right. So the government has to look at they don't have a revenue source other than taxation. So when they want to influence, you know, the populace to do thing A instead of thing B, the way that they will do that is they'll do that by giving tax deductions and tax credits. They'll say, hey, if you if you put money in opportunity zones, right, if you fix up these these neighborhoods, we will give you tax benefits because it's easier for the private sector to do that than the government to say, OK, we're going to take over and we're going to you know raise money and do all this stuff in order to, to make this a thing. So that's the first part. Now, you also have to realize most of the politicians are top one percenters. So they're, they're, they're basically eating their own cooking. We don't think about that. We see them on the news and like tax the rich. And a lot of times it's like, bro, you, you are the rich. Like you're, <laughs> you're in the group, you're telling everyone you want to tax. Yeah. They're not going to tax themselves. The second group that's responsible for the tax code is the 1%. And these are not politicians. These are our private sector corporations, businesses, family offices, what they quite literally do is they will hire lobbyists. These lobbyists will court the politicians 
and they'll give them campaign donations and they'll wine and dine them and they'll basically win them over, right? And then the, the corporations, the top one percenters, they will have their lawyers write a bill and they'll say, hey, we want this sponsored and we want it put into the tax code. Okay, so they have a politician now that will take it to the floor, they'll sponsor it, it'll go in and it'll get into the tax code. An example of this, um, you remember the, the COVID bill that passed at the end of 2020 last year? Yeah. Like, like down to the wire end of the year. Had nothing to do with anything finance. It was all you know subsidies handling COVID. Somehow Mass Mutual Life Insurance Company got a, got a bill inside of that subsidy bill. They got a writer saying that they could uh, decrease their reserve amount, increase their cash values so that wealthy people could put more money into the life insurance policies. What the hell does that have to do with COVID, <laughs> right? And, and how many strings do you have to pull to be able to, at the wire, get that added to the tax code? So that's the biggest thing. Anyone can do the tax code. But it comes down to, again, financial literacy. I'm not going to understand a 5,000-page document if I don't understand the basics of finances. And then secondly is having a professional team, somebody that actually can translate it, implement it, um, and, and make sure that it's all compliant so that I, if I do get audited, I can, I can pull out my cards and say, hey, look, we're clean. Everything is by the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of it, the you know incentivizing people, and and we talk about depreciation in real estate all the time, the amazing tax benefits of of real estate. I, and I know it's a topic maybe makes some people cringe, but it is such an important, crazy important topic for so many families out there. And I don't think people understand how powerful that is um, to understand that as well when it comes to building financial independence and, and wealth in general. We, we talked about it a little bit. I'm really interested in your thoughts on, you know, as we're entering this post COVID pandemic world and, and where we're at kind of in the market cycle. I mean, if you look at, I was just yesterday looking at, uh, the S and P 500, a 30 year chart of it and where it is today and where it was 30 years ago. And it's absolutely insane. When you look at, you know, I think it was 40% of the U S dollars right now in circulation were printed in the last 18 months. Yeah, I mean, nuts. yeah. I mean, Jerry, your thoughts on kind of like where we're heading and what 2022 or 2023 might look like. I mean, people, you know, say eventually this is going to have to fall off. The music's definitely going to have to stop soon. I mean, I guess, what are your thoughts on where we're at right now in the cycle and what the future holds? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would have to say is it's about damn time, right? Like for, for those of us that have been watching finances, we've been saying this would happen for, you know, for years. And, and, you know, it just gets kicked down the road and ignored. But finally, I think the general populace is, I don't think they're quite waking up to it yet, but they're seeing the impact of it. They're seeing, you know, the 8% inflation rate, which is really probably double that, right, with real inflation. And, and they know that that's a problem. So I think more people are starting to become aware of it. Um, the problem is, and, and I actually posted an article today, the central banks can't even agree on how to handle it. Right. They had a meeting, 20 of the largest central banks got together and they're starting to split into different groups on different varying opinions on how are we going to handle inflation? How are we going to handle the economy? And, and it's funny because they're not going to stop doing the thing that caused it. They're going to continue lowering interest rates. They're going to continue uh, printing out money. It's got to go one or two ways. Way number one is going to be painful, but good in the long run. We let it crash. We let everything come down and, and, and realize its true value. And then we we don't do the things that got us there in the future. It's going to be a tough couple of years, and it's probably going to look like a depression or a recession. But we come out of that with real numbers, real asset valuations, real production. We have less government you know, uh, subsidies and involvement. I don't think the general populace would want that, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like everyone wants to lose weight. No one wants to, to go to the gym, right? It's going to be painful, and it's going to burn a little bit while it happens. The other route is we're going to continue doing what we're doing, right? And I, and I liken that to, okay, well, 
you know, we're just going to continue increasing the dosage. We're going to do more quantitative easing, more printing of money, more loans. And what's going to ultimately happen with that is our currency will become valueless. And where that matters is how valueless is it in relation to other people's currencies? You know, the other countries that trade with us, when they look at the US dollar, if they no longer want it, that's a problem. Now, if everyone devalues their currency, which looks like that's what's happening, it's kind of like we're all mutually sucking and everyone's value goes down and we're okay with it because that's the, the general homeostasis or the normal across the board. But we're seeing countries that are starting to buy gold. We're seeing countries that are no longer using US treasuries. And so I think ultimately what will happen is we're going to see, you know, people are going to say, hey, we don't want dollars anymore. It's not the world reserve currency. I think it's probably going to end up being unfortunately, like an IMF or a World Bank-based currency, um, which is probably worse. But I think that's the, the if, if I'm the bad guys, that's the direction I want it to go in. That's my preference, right? If I'm the good guys, that's not the direction I want it to go in. So I'm rooting for the good guys, but I'm preparing for the bad guys. And, and for me, that means owning real assets, um, having my passive income. If the currency goes down in value, I've got to make sure that I'm out earning that rate. Um, and, and so I've got to be really focused during a time like this. Yeah. And I, I, I would just go back to your intro where, where this journey all started, you know, what inspired you to be a wealth advisor? And it's like the day you were told that nothing backs the American dollar and what allows just the central government to just print at will and what we would call fiat currency or so I just find it so intriguing. Like I said, I wish I could bring it up here. I, I don't have it ready, but you know, the curve of the S and P 500 and where it was today, even compared to the 08 crash is absolutely incredible. It's, it's five times as high right now. And it's because they're printing so much money. When looking at hard assets, and, and last question before we get ready to wrap up here, and I know we could spend a whole other episode on the topic of gold, but you're the first gentleman I've had on who's super fluent on the topic. And you kind of mentioned it just a little bit in your response before. On the topic of gold, I guess, what are your general thoughts on that? I mean, is that a good investment to get into? Is that like a good hedge against inflation? Or what are your overall thoughts? Yeah. So with gold, it's specifically a store of value, right? And, and I'm, I'm a very linear thinker. So there are, there are currencies, the things that I earn in, and I want to earn them. I don't want to keep them. I want to get rid of them because they go down in value. Then there are stores of value. I would convert my currency into a store of value in order to accumulate it, retain and store the value till I invest it. Then when I invest it, those are things that produce income. And then finally, there are speculations things that I hope they go up to a higher price so I can sell them to somebody else at that higher price. Those are kind of the four groups. Gold is not a currency anymore. It used to be a currency. It's no longer a currency. We don't barter and, and exchange with gold. Maybe we will someday, but I highly doubt it. It's definitely a store of value. It's not an investment because it doesn't produce income. And it can be a speculation depending on your mindset. You can buy it and trade it for a higher price, right? So I look at it as a store of value. I'm not a speculator. I don't get involved in things like that, but I'm storing my value in gold. Um, the way that I look at it is number one, gold has been around for 6,000 years. Every single currency, every single monetary system has failed but gold, right? And it's always gone back to gold when it does fail. So I look at that and it's like, you know, like it's, it's, it's like betting on in the NBA, betting on Jordan, like Jordan, that's the guy. Number, it doesn't matter. You can say Kobe, LeBron, it's always going to be Jordan. Jordan will always be the number one guy. Right. Gold is like Jordan. And so, you know, there's always going to be new players on the block, but at the end of the day, who has the most rings? Okay. And so that's what you got to look at. And then, you know, the other aspect of it too, is you've got to look at who owns it. Okay. It's not the American consumer. Only 12% of Americans own any gold at all compared to in 1971, when technically hundred percent of Americans owned gold, because by owning dollars, you had a 
gold backed certificate. Therefore, you owned gold by having that dollar, right? So we went from 100%, a one to one ratio to only 12%, right? Only enough gold exists for every human being on the planet to own one ounce. If we mined all of it and distributed all of it, we could all only have one ounce of gold, okay? But if you look at who are the number one owners of gold right now, number one is the United States Central Bank. They own half a trillion dollars worth. They don't talk about it. It's not reported. But if you look on their site, they report it and you can find out in dollars what it's worth. It's half a trillion, right? Why would they own half a trillion? There's a quote from JP Morgan back in the early 1900s. And I'm going to paraphrase, but he says, if, if an if a institution own, owns gold and uses that gold to then lend credit to the borrower, he says the borrower and his customers are bad off. The institution that has the gold is the winner. The one that's borrowing is the loser, Right. Well, how is our our system set up? The central bank owns all of the gold. The United States treasury is the borrower. And we are the client or the customer of the United States treasury. The treasury and the American consumer are bad off. The central banks are good because they own all the gold, right? So I would say, you know, for everyone, like store your value in gold. It's not an income producing asset. It's not a speculation. But if you are saving in dollars, that is just a terrible idea. And that's that's going to be the demise of your financial independence, right? So that's my opinion on it. Um, again, I, I look at I look at who runs the game and what are they doing. The central banks make the rules they always have, and and they're they're owning gold right now. They always have owned gold, and so that's what I want to do too. Yeah, I mean, it's just a it's just kind of like a peek behind the curtain. If the central bank owns half a trillion dollars in gold, it might be a good idea to own some gold. It's kind um, of like the old phrase, right? <laughs> do it, do as I do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> There you go. And I, I just want to, before we hop, you know, start to wrap up here and get into the bonus round. I mean, of all the guests we've had on Jerry, you know, gold being compared to Michael Jordan, the other analogies you've made today, I mean, a plus on your analogy game and how you're kind of communicating this, just, com- you know, comparing gold to Michael Jordan, it, it's just incredible. We've never had anybody do it. So I just wanted to commend you on that. I thought, uh, yeah, you're crushing that. But uh, as we hop into the, uh, the bonus round here, I just want to get your thoughts on two last questions. And we ask these to all the guests as we wrap up here. So, Jerry, if you could solve any problem in the world, what would it be and why? I could solve any problem in the world. I would say financial illiteracy. And the reason why is through financial illiteracy. And I think that this is a condition that's created on purpose. um, Slavery is still allowed, right? People who are, who are, you know, even countries that recently got out of communism and slavery are put right back into it. Our, our American Revolutionary War was actually fought over central banking. It was nothing to do with taxation. It was the fact that, that the colonies used their own currency and the Bank of England didn't like that. And so they bribed King George or whoever that king was to fight us, right? And so that's, that's something that I would, I would help. I would get rid of financial literacy because I think it, it makes people wise enough to then go be free, right? If, if we didn't have to, to worry about money, we could just treat it like oxygen. We just take what we need, we get rid of what we don't need, and it doesn't interfere with our decisions and behavior. I think that's the way life is meant to be lived. And I would love to see everyone living it that way. I, I love that. And I love just the higher purpose behind the vision. Yeah, obviously financial you know, literacy, but it will allow people to trade you know, time for freedom or money for freedom and be able to achieve and, and do what they want to do. So I, I just love the higher purpose behind that. And, and the very last question, Jerry, and I, I'm super inspired just as your story as a whole. So I'm intrigued by your response to this one. Again, your, you know, your business partner, your wife, Lexi, you guys have, you know, come so far in the last decade or have now attained, you know, attained incredible feats here. You know, Jerry Feta's living the perfect life. What does it look like? I think my perfect life 
probably doesn't look too much different than what it is now, right? Um, I'm not the guy that I'm going to quit helping people and I'm going to, you know, go, go retire on a beach somewhere. Um, for me, my perfect life means that I can focus on my purposes, but I, I can do it without having to worry about money, right? There's a difference between running a business because I need income versus running a business because it helps people. And, and whether I make income or not, doesn't matter. So, you know, I think that that's what my perfect life looks like is just continuing to expand on my purposes, impacting as many people as I can, um, you know, really not having to consider money at all right? Eating what I want, wearing what I want, traveling where I want, spending time with who I want. But for me, it's also important to have other people there too. I don't want to be doing all of that alone, right? So that's that, again, for me, the impact I want, I want people like you, you know, friends, family to be able to come along with me and be like, Hey, we're, we're free together and uh, we can all live the perfect life. And I think that's what that looks like for me. Yeah. I love that. And, and again, just how, you, how inspiring your story is and how you and your wife have been able to attain financial freedom, you know, before the age of 30, I think this episode will be super applicable to, you know, young people, teenagers, people in their 20s, but also, you know, the mom and dad that's out there, maybe in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Um, I, you know, I tell everybody, it's never too late to start on this journey with the right systems and processes, you can surely make a difference and, and make an impact on someone's life. And that's exactly what you're doing, Jerry. So again, I appreciate you taking the time to come on Wealth Science today. People who are inspired by the story want to hear more about you, Jerry, you know, what are the best platforms? to reach you on. I know you have incredible books out, uh, out as well. You know, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Yeah. So, um, you can follow me on Instagram at Jerry Feta, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, we're on all of them, but Instagram is probably the one I'm the most active on. Um, if you want to get a free chapter of my new book, blueprint of financial freedom, if you go to jerryfetacom forward slash free chapter, and, um, you can read the first chapter of that, that'll get you started. Our website has a ton of content, articles, videos, podcasts, um, so just dive in and, and, and as things make sense, take action on them and just keep going and, and making that progress. Yeah. Thank you again for coming on. I, I can't thank you enough. And I, I just loved your answer to those last two questions and how really the huge why behind this is helping free people, you know, from financial slavery to attain their true vision and, and the lives that they were born to live. So Jerry, you're doing the tough job out there. You're helping change people's lives. Thank you again for coming on Wealth Science today and, and making a huge impact. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Thanks, Jerry. See ya. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Wealth Science Podcast. Take some time to subscribe and leave us a review. It really is the basis that helps us continue to bring on amazing guests each week. We have another incredible story to share next week, and I'm certain it's going to add value to this community. Please, do not hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do to help you in your journey of attaining financial freedom. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.